0: Hello there, Rethinkers. Paloma Fernandez Perez is a historian who studies the healthcare system. Her findings throughout history on systems all over the world started with Michael Porter, but went so much further. In this episode, we talk about pandemics and why we should treat the COVID-19 pandemic like a war. Yes, you heard me right, like a war. We discuss the differences between healthcare systems in Europe, Russia, the US, And we talk about the Asian and Latin American systems. Paloma has written a book that was recently published called The Emergence of Modern Hospital Management and Organizations in the World, 1880s till 1930s. And has worked out countless articles. For now, I will no longer keep you waiting. Enjoy this episode of the Rethinking Podcast with with Paloma (laughs) Fernandez-Perez. Hello, Paloma, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. And you do, so you do research on the history in the field of healthcare, uh, which is a special field to me because I want to get into that field. And so can you explain uh, what you do?
1: Yeah, uh, my interest in healthcare started in 2016 uh, because I, I was um, following one of the professors that I admire the most Uh, who is uh, Michael Porter and you know Michael Porter in the Harvard Business School. He had been very well known in the nineties for his studies about industrial districts. And he was extremely famous, extremely well known but suddenly no one knows how or why. Michael Porter who was so famous with that and earning a lot of money, he changed and started studying health. And I was surprised. And I asked myself, why is this the case? So I realized something which is very obvious for many people, but not for me in 2016, which was the problems the US had at the time in the 90s and later with health care, that millions of people uh, could not afford having a health insurance, that many people were very sick and, and were using opium derivatives, derivatives because doctors uh, could not give them recipes of uh, more expensive uh, medicines. So people with pain, instead of having good diagnosis and good treatment, they were receiving massively in the US, and that has been very well studied, uh, medical recipes with opium derivatives, which has caused a great addiction in the US and no solution for the pain. Of those millions of people so michael potter was studying and was a member of a group of people including uh, barack obama who were very worried in the u.s about how to try to change that on the one hand trying to uh, study legally actions against pharmaceutical companies and medical sector that were Uh, using these opium derivatives massively, creating addiction to millions of people. But on the other hand, trying to change the market of health insurance and trying to make it more affordable with some intervention of the public sector. And I asked myself, do I know anything about what's the problem in the rest of the world? Uh, How we are doing better? Uh, In Spain, we heard that Spain and Japan were the countries with the longest life expectancy in the world. And I asked myself, how's that? In Spain, we don't have mm, really a lot of expenditure in healthcare. Why do we behave so well, like Japan, better than the US? So I started to ask me many questions. And I realized that some wise people like Barack Obama, or these uh, men from Harvard were already doing some research and some work and uh, I was doing nothing. And <laughs> so that's uh, my motivation. So my ignorance, uh, that's why I started reading a lot. And once I started learning a bit, I started doing some original research uh, from a historical point of view, which is my area of expertise trying to study a similar situation to the one that we are living our days, but in a historical past. If I could find a moment in time when similar situation could have happened and how society reacted with the diversity of solutions. And that's uh, how my research on healthcare started.
0: Wow, so what mm. are you working on now? What
1: Right now, I work in two directions. In fact, three directions. (laughs) Uh, One on the field of ideas about uh, what kind of ideas have tried to change and improve the way health is uh, regulated and health is uh, treated in centers, hospitals, and governments. So the field of ideas. And on that, I have just published a book about the movement of ideas for the early modern organization of hospitals in the world a century ago. A second area or direction of research is trying to find long-term indicators of improvement in the capacity of hospitals in order to meet the challenges of external shocks that affect the population. So usually we hear, if you type in an internet, uh, World Health Organization, indicators of health in the world, you would very easily find uh, health expenditure, private or public. And most of these indicators about health expenditure over GDP in the world, by countries, by regions, by cities, by hospitals, you would find a lot, but only after the 1960s, not before. So we realize, or, or because statistics only start with the OECD and the World Health Organization in a massive way after the 1960s, we believe that nothing happened before. That we, civilization, started to do something to improve hospitals only half a century ago, which is completely false. Uh, So I tried to find some uh, reliable, acceptable indicators. And I found that one that it's very easy to find even in medieval times, even in ancient times, even in Egypt, in, in, in El Cairo, hospitals of ancient times, is hospital beds. So. I realized that if you have data for cities, countries, regions, hospitals, no matter when about hospital beds, and you also have data about population, it can be total uh, population of a city, a country, a region, or the world, then you could have a hospital beds per capita from ancient times until our days. Of course, that's very difficult because the more you go to the past, The more you only have data for cities, not for countries, and the borders of countries have changed a lot, which also make comparisons difficult, the more you go far back in time. But uh, if you try to be more uh, rational, I would say that more or less the frontiers started to be fixed, more or less, uh, at least in Europe, but also in Latin America uh, and some Asian countries, more or less end of the 19th century. The interwar period. So I said, okay, let's study that period. Let's see if I can find indicators at hospital beds per capita there. And then if I could compare with the OECD World Health Organization data after the 1960s, could I make a series trying to see how the world has um, tried to do their improvement in capacity of hospitals? Because Hospital beds in themselves are not alone excellent indicators of well-being in a country or city. Because a hospital bed can have just that, just a bed and nothing else. It can be assisted by someone who's not a specialized, not a nurse, not a physician, can be you, you know who is taking care of that hospital bed. But in general, after at the end of the 19th century, hospital beds had nurses, professional nurses, especially Western Europe, the US, Japan, in the major cities of Asia. There were professional trained nurses already. There were educated, high education physicians. So there was a specialized staff at the end of the 19th century. You also have medical equipment, technology, x-rays vaccines. You had uh, some uh, anesthetical products. So one hospital bed, even if it's not a perfect comparable indicator, could be a good proxy about the improvement. The more hospital beds with all that, the more means that there was a public or private investment in healthcare. Even if you don't have financial data even if you don't have data about total spending, but the bed in itself could be a proxy of investment in healthcare. So that's my second area of research. And I have built, I just published an article about hospital beds in the world, in which I provide the first series, historical series, for various countries and continents in the world, which proves something which is uh, shocking. In 1929, there were many countries which have exactly the same number of hospital beds they have today. Uh, In Generally in the world, exception made of Latin America where there's an stability in hospital beds per capita, always except Cuba, Uruguay or Argentina or Mexico, all the others, especially Andean countries, always they have half in the last century average two hospital beds per head. Only two hospital beds uh, uh, per, sorry, per uh, 1,000 inhabitants, okay? So per 1,000, they only have two beds with nurses or physicians. In the other extreme of the world, I found out that Japan, Germany, were the countries with the best. Uh, but also Central Europe uh, and Eastern Europe, probably because of their communist uh, period, but not just for that. Eastern Europe, Poland, had one of the countries with more Nobel Prizes of the whole Europe. Hungary, before the Communists arrived, Central Europe, the Austrian Empire, was one of the places of the world with more science and higher level of a scientific research. And that means that explains why, with the communists as well, they have maintained a high level of hospital beds per 1,000 persons in their countries. That's something interesting. During the 1960s and 80s, hospital beds grew all over the world. And I have found out that, except in Latin America and the young countries where they almost remain stable, and Africa. But in the rest of the world, they multiply by two, and in some countries by five. But in the 1980s, something that not many people know, everywhere in the world, including Germany or Japan, the leading ones, and the US, of course, Spain, they have reduced dramatically the number of hospital beds they had in the 60s or in the 1930s because of the crisis of the 1970s. Why I'm talking so much about this, which seems a bit boring? (laughs) Because now, one of the big problems some countries have, for instance, Spain, with the COVID pandemic, is that we don't have enough capacity in the hospitals to go get all the patients, especially uh, very intensive acute patients. We don't have enough hospital beds. Why? Oh, my God. It's not just something that has happened suddenly, that the external shocks are so huge. Yeah, but also there has been something that took place in the 80s, everywhere in the world. Governments decided that they were very wise, that they were powerful, that their science was the best uh, in the planet, in the universe, so that pandemics no longer would repeat in the world. Maybe in Africa, No, Africa is far, so they don't care. So Africa is far, we can close borders. Europe will never suffer pandemics. The US as well, or Asia. So because this, uh, I don't know the word in English, but because of this blindness to the historical recurrence periodicity of global pandemics, this ignorance made to close hospitals and hospital beds in the 80s and 90s in the world, especially hospitals for the old people. That was the target. Most of the public hospitals for old people, for aged people, sustained with public funds in Europe or in Japan or in Latin America, were privatized or were closed. Surprise, during COVID times, some of the must Uh, important mortality has happened in privatized residences for the aged people because public funding and public control, public regulations did not affect these private residences in the last 20 years. Private regulations were almost free. The governments allowed the private residences for all people to rule themselves as they wished with very few controls, very few requirements, really very few, very few inspections. This privatization that took place, especially in Western Europe, in Spain, 1980s, 1990s, has been responsible for the disorder, the chaos, in what to do with all people in private residences when COVID exploited. Because no one knew the, the protocol, Should we send to public hospitals? Oh, should we send to private hospitals? Oh, they don't have the money. So how, how should we? The chaos was total. No centralized authority, no hierarchy, no protocols. Half of the dead people in Spain in the COVID first wave have been in private residences for all people. So starting this second line of research about hospital beds Makes me think and makes me uh, demonstrate to people who read my articles that there was a severe cut that was shared in all wel- welfare countries that should be reversed. Okay. And mm. my third line of research is uh, studying uh, hospitals in Latin America uh, because there's very little information and there's a lot of private clinics, private hospitals, which leave very few historical records. So it's very tough to find them. And that's one of my last lines of research right now.
0: So that is very interesting that you say that because I have only heard about the last five years in the Netherlands that they've been cutting costs in hospital, in healthcare, and closing hospitals and uh, cutting people uh, like cutting in the number of people that work in hospitals, and because of that, there is now a, a shortage in beds because they want, out, like, they want patients to get out of the hospital as quickly as possible. They want outpatients, not inpatients, and now they have a huge like bed problem um, when it comes to the and, ICU.
1: And you know the most interesting thing is that these cuts uh, were maintained during the period when more European money went for programs of regional development in Europe. Uh, For countries like Spain, but not just Spain, Portugal, Greece, Italy, and France, that were supposed to have regions with the GDP, average GDP, below the average European uh, GDP. So they were considered to uh, in need of funds for reaching convergence with the average GDP. So they received lots of money in the 1980s, but above all 1990s, when the cuts were higher in hospital beds and more privatization took place and more um, unemployment generated, at least in the expectatives, because if you reduce the number of hospitals, you reduce the expectations of young doctors or young nurses to be employed. So precariousness started to take place because the supply of work, the expectations of the labor market for physicians or nurses were reduced. This happened when there was a big expansion in the money for regional development programs of the European Union to most of the regions in Europe. In what exactly the European money for regional development programs went. I know a lot the experience in Spain, but this happened also in most of Southern Europe. I don't, I'm not that familiar with other parts of of Europe, but in Southern Europe, most of the money went for highways, airports. Uh, They went also to fund the construction of high-speed trains, Especially airports, uh, highways, more roads, improvement of roads, which, yes, it has a social impact. uh, No one can deny it it has a social impact, but it's funny or it's not that funny if you travel with your car in those nice highways, and I do, for instance, in the province of Girona, or if you travel in the Balearic Island some regions have really nice highways but there's nothing to transport in those highways except tourists so and tourism has really been hit during the covid pandemic the highways are empty if you can travel because there are municipal restrictions for mobility but if you can travel in the highways you will see that there's nothing they're empty but the hospitals are full are so, collapsed. So yeah.
0: why would the governments reduce costs in healthcare? Why would they why would they cut costs in something that's so vital to a
1: because country? of overconfidence, because of an excess of confidence in science? Uh, there was an excess of confidence in the capacity of the innovation system in the European Union and in the US. governments believed that if there was a problem with pandemics, the hospitals could react perfectly, that there was enough. Because as I said, they forget or they are ignorant about history. And pandemics happen every 50 years, and the big ones every 100 years. And they will continue to happen. Possibly the speed will increase because of low transport, because of this uh, civilization of us, of uh, so much speed and uh, so cheap prices for traveling, viruses also travel faster and they arrive to our countries faster. And the number of mutations that increase the dangers and the risks for our healthcare are increasing. The solution is very difficult, of course, one is in the short term is closing borders. And now the European Union is seriously considering Norway has started closing the border to Sweden and Finland uh, in order to avoid Germany is right now, this morning I heard in the news, Germany is seriously considering uh, prohibiting, for forbidding the entry of people from countries with variations, which are most of the world because the people with the South African or the British variation or Brazilian ones are everywhere already in Europe. So that means closing borders and it might be short term, yes. They they won't do it for more than one month because foreign trade is essential for Norway or for Germany. So they will be crazy. It will be suicide, closing borders for more than one month. But this can happen once and again. This is not the solution. In Spain there has been an experience which has been heavily criticized, uh, which imitates a bit one solution that Chinese took in Wuhan, which was building very fast a specialized hospital only for infected of COVID, which makes the hospitals not be uh, collapsed by this kind of uh, patients and maintain the treatment of the rest of illnesses. The Chinese did that, seemed to work pretty well. Most of the doctors and nurses of the normal hospitals could not be infected with the COVID. And most of the physicians and nurses of the other hospitals, they became infected and many, many died. In Madrid, they had built a, a hospital like this only for infections. It's called the Isabel Zendal Hospital. Very large, but (laughs) with many beds, but with little staff. Uh, There are few nurses and few physicians, and not many want to be moved from normal hospitals to the new hospital. That seems to be crazy, because rationally, that's the optimum solution, technically speaking. But here's one of the problems I study in my research. When rationality uh, finds an obstacle in path-dependent beliefs or path-dependent institutional problems. Many sanitary staff, uh, what they want is higher salaries. They don't want to work in a nicer hospital. They don't want to be removed to a specialized hospital. They want higher salaries, better contracts. And they will not accept being moved to the new hospital unless these labor conditions are improved. We should have, wow. And what happens? Labor conditions cannot be improved. We live in Europe. Contracts are contracts, and the law is the law. So if the law says that you have that's something sacred, a budget, the public budget is sacred, except for the government, which of course does whatever yeah. they want. <laughs> But except for the government for whom there are always exceptions and deficit they can create, the rest of the human beings cannot uh, do deficits. Um, We have to be either unemployed, get fired, because hospitals cannot create deficit, especially public hospitals. So public hospitals are not allowed to hire or raise salaries or improve the contracts of sanitary staff because the government says, no, you cannot do that. I can do it, but you cannot do that. (laughs) Uh, Some governments, regional governments, more free market style, they are trying to to combine the public requirements, the public limitations to hire uh, new sanitary staff or improve their salaries. But most of the uh, public sector is reluctant to coexist with private initiatives. That's another dependent European style of doing things. The public sector works as a block. So they want uh, better conditions for all the block. So they don't accept that in one hospital, private uh, staff can be hired to help the public staff. Wow! (laughs) <laughs> they don't like it. They they don't want to coexist with private initiative. That's very Western European. Or I would say that's very typical of France, Italy, Spain, possibly not the Netherlands, where you are more <laughs> practical people, you are more pragmatic and you perfectly understand that it's in some conditions it can be good to have private and public coexisting in one single center. What's the problem? But in some other countries, path dependence, of the unions are very strong. They are uh, re- doing strikes. In the middle of the pandemic in Spain, we have had a lot of strikes of the healthcare sector in the public hospitals because with a, a lot of, uh, they were perfectly right. They were suffering extremely bad conditions in their work. No equipment, bad salaries, bad hours, uh, no regulation of the number of hours they were working daily. So the government said nothing. They just turned their heads to another. So there were many strikes and many movements of solution of the bad conditions in terms of block of the public sector. Uh, this uh, hinders, this creates restrictions to finding pragmatic solutions in some countries.
0: So what you said earlier, when you said that um, every 100 years there is a, a big pandemic, how, how did we move out of the previous one? Because I read about the Spanish pandemic and what I heard was that there was no clear path out of it. It just, there was never a real vaccine vaccine for it. I don't know. What do you know about that? Or how does that look historically for this one?
1: Yeah, the the research that I did was in fact to try to use history as a laboratory of uh, possible good experiences. And what I found out is that 100 years ago there was a big pandemic in the world it was the the spanish flu of 1918 that caused millions of people dying and the pandemic took place in combination with world war one and combined to create a high mortality especially of very young people especially in the battlefront many soldiers were in the battlefront and the fever spread very quickly and killed more people were dying for fever or infections than for bullets in World War I. That made many governments feel pressured because the public opinion and the media were, the, the, the Russian Revolution, the communist revolution took place because they were suffering exactly this and Russia wanted to get out of the war That's why the civil war exploded in Russia. And in the UK, in in Germany, in France, the media were very critical about the results of the war and the combination in the cities of the Spanish flu. So the governments started to give money and especially freedom, that some more freedom than money to some scientists that were considered authorities in their major uh, cities. So, for instance, in Berlin, in the Hospital Charité of Berlin, the government gave them freedom to do research about possible vaccines, possible medicines, uh, possible treatments in order to confront the problems of the flu. What happened in Germany happened in most of Europe and also in the US. In the US they had had in the 1860s their civil war. Again, many soldiers died because of infections more than from bullets. So political uh, authorities realized that it could be cheaper to invest in a science than in soldiers in those conditions. that something had to do and had to be done and that the private initiative didn't have enough resources. So in that moment, it was for military reasons to avoid more deaths of soldiers, when everywhere in the world, governments gave more money for research and more freedom. Freedom for what? Freedom uh, against two big forces that always go or many times go historically against innovation in medicine. One, religion. And two, traditional ideas of traditional elites, controlling local power. So governments, there were many clashes of new modern ideas and scientists defending new ideas and scientists defending old ideas. Uh, many, pe- many physicians didn't trust X-rays or didn't trust vaccines a century ago. They thought it was like, whoa, this is not proven, this is going to kill more people. Who can believe that X-rays can cross the, the, the head of a person? It's impossible. That was written by many uh, full professors of high uh, respected institutions of Germany, Spain and the UK. And there were many battles in the scientific associations. It was not easy. So it was very important in this context that government said, stop the battle. I will give my money to the one that is trying to do something new because all ideas are not working anymore in times of war and flu and cholera and tuberculosis running and killing thousands in the cities. So these new uh, innovative people were creating like islands of innovations in some big hospitals of the world. These these were, as I said, islands disconnected from the rest, uh, especially in countries where tradition dominated above innovation, as in Spain or, or in Italy. There were many pioneering doctors and nurses trying to do things more modern than in the US, more modern than in the UK, but the rest of their communities didn't support them or the rest of the country didn't follow their routines or their suggestions. So what's the lesson? The lesson is that in times of external shocks, it's extremely important that governments Support and give a lot of money, not a bit, a lot of money, to innovative scientists that are able to lead innovative teams and giving them a lot of money to do exactly what they think that is needed. And that's important, especially in the short run, because one of the bad things about the science is that they don't pay much attention to real life. (laughs) So so sometimes you spend too much money and you have many restaurants or hotels or businesses closed and you don't pay attention to that. So it's good that you give a lot of money and trust for at least one or two years, which is what is needed in order to to balance a big pandemic. The Spanish flu of one century uh, ago had three waves of attack to the population in Europe, three waves. The first one was uh, mild, relatively mild, but the second was had a lot of mortality. And the third one was starting to decline. And in that period, there was no vaccine against the Spanish flu. So it was herd immunity, reached after the third wave. Okay.
0: Does that is that real? Does that work? Because there's been so much debate about whether. Well, it worked with
1: right. with more than with with millions of people dying in exchange. So yes, it worked, <laughs> mm. but many people died. Especially, a century ago, the flu, the pandemic, hit uh, infant children and young people, uh, especially men, who were in their teens or in their twenties. And that was, that was very damaging for the economy in the long term, because they were active population. And when the reconstruction had to take place, a lot of young people were not there. So the fertility also declined, the natality declined, because there were many children and uh, teens and adult men uh, able to have children. So the uh, recovery took longer than the recovery I think that will take place in our days. because our days, unfortunately, the population that is most, most hardly hit are people with chronic illnesses and old people. These are the, the worst um, which are non-active population. If we are I, I have many relatives all age who have died, during this COVID period. I'm so I, I, I know that what I say sounds a bit like Nazi, but it's not Nazi, it's just comparing the actual pandemic with the pandemic a century ago. Um, one of the maybe hopes for the fast recovery of our economy will be exactly the age of the population that are mostly affected by COVID, very different to the population one century ago. So, so yeah.
0: what you said is that they in those, like in the 1918, they were more like little islands that did research on how to solve the pandemic. But how do you see that being different now? Do they now work together? Um, because what I heard was that the government put in a lot of money, but now they're just vaccines of so these companies that are not delivering the number they said they would. So how is this working now compared to then?
1: The answer is very easy if you see what's happening with Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines. So if they were not islands, the governments could have uh, made the patents of their vaccines be free for all laboratories of the world in months or maybe half a year after the company had made profits. The vaccine. I am not communist at all. I am not communist. But in times of exceptional death and mortality of the population, as it happened, for instance, during World War II, and I'm not, I I will answer your question (laughs) after talking of World War II. During World War II, there were many innovations that doctors found practicing experiments with soldiers that were badly hit in the surgeon room. And the US and the allies decided not to register patents of any innovation during the war. That only when the war was over, every country and every company could register patents of innovations linked to war experiments. And there were many war experiments during World War II in both sides, Nazi, Japan, the US, and in the UK, or, or everywhere, there were many experiments. And some of the experiments resulted in, in highly good uh, medicines that have saved millions of lives. Okay, what happens now? I compare with Second World War. This is a war today. This is a war. There are millions dying. We have no idea where from, and, and we have not enough resources. and, and people are dying every day. We have the daily reports. So it's a war situation. And there needs to be war solutions. In the last big war, governments decided not to allow private benefits, not to allow private companies register patents on their individual single profit. They decided that all the different governments will share innovations in order for all to help them save lives. That's something history can also teach today because the opposite is happening today. All the different uh, commissars of the European Union are saying that the health authority of the European Union two days ago appeared on TV saying that we are living a war. If we are living a war, patents should should not be allowed. They should be shared. So all laboratories, public and private, could produce the vaccines and accelerate the production and distribution of vaccines. That's not being done because we are again, as a century ago, working in isolated, disconnected islands. So each government says to their leading scientists and their leading companies, do whatever you want. Yes, okay. And whatever you do, it will be ours, for our armies, for our soldiers. That's what Germany did a century ago. Unfortunately, because of that, later, we all use vaccines against against cholera, against uh, rabbi, uh, the bites of the dogs and animals. Germans discovered these vaccines a century ago. But initially, the discovery was for them. They did not share the the vaccine. It was after some years that they shared. The French had to discover the same vaccines because they were not connected, Germans and French, Mm -hmm. each working separately. So we are living like in pre-World War I times before the League of Nations existed. We have now United Nations, we have the World Health Organization, we have the European Union. So we are all together buying vaccines to uh, three private companies begging please uh, come on this is a war so i would of course i am not a communist i know that innovation takes a lot of effort a lot of money a lot of great people and greatest scientists need rewards and need incentives because if you don't pay a lot to the company or their employees they wa- they are not going to create radical innovations and new vaccines. I know, I know that capitalism is required to have innovations, to create incentives, but you can have incentives for a few months and then let the others uh, avoid millions of debts and millions of people losing their jobs and closing a, a lot of businesses everywhere. So I think the European Union and especially United Nations are missing the reason why they were created, which is to avoid islands, to avoid protectionism, to exploit dialogue, and in times of war, do things that help each other, not damage each other. So yeah, that's what I think.
0: So how did that happen then? How did did it change like this?
1: It happens because of one of the good things about good administration is also the the worst thing of good administration, which is blocking fast decision-making processes. So to have good bureaucracy is good to avoid abuses. In good times, when there's no pandemic and no war, it's good to have good bureaucracy, uh, a slow administration to check that there's no country abusing from common funds, that there's no regions that are abusing. Okay control, 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 double, triple control. That's good. But in times of war, decision-making processes have to be fast. There must be one single authority that works for the common good and without administration, without controls or the, the fewer controls possible. It must be faster. And it must be also historically informed Uh, I think what that's one of the few things that I can really be sure that needs to be done. More study about what happened in past times of war needs to be done in order to realize uh, things that are not properly done in our days, like this uh, thing that I about sharing uh, innovations and avoiding patents in times of uh, vast debts and vast. Uh, economic crisis. It has happened just because of this increased administration, but also it has happened because of the current geopolitical times that have created big blocks in the world. So, Asia was the Asia Pacific region works in one different way, the US works in different ways, Latin Americans are always disconnected, historically, always <laughs> disconnected. They that's, that's that's their way of doing it's not a problem for them, it's their way of feeling independent one from the other. They they lost the Spanish Empire, they don't want another empire, an association of whatever origins, telling them what to do. They want to be independent. Okay, okay. So this independent thing, which I respect and I it has their own reasons, but blocks again. Uh, uh, the innovation in the region or creating funds in order to help those countries like the Andean region or Central America, Honduras, Costa Rica, that always goes so bad. And they they, they have the worst hospital spending of a whole, the whole region historically. And so I think that if we di- didn't have United Nations, I would say the solution is create the United Nations. <laughs> We already have it. (laughs) The the problem is that it it doesn't have authority, that the different countries have reduced the legitimacy of international associations, including the European Union. Including the European Union. It doesn't have legitimacy. Each country goes in their own way, which is a mistake. It is a mistake, costing lives.
0: To, uh, to get to closing and then I can, we'll let you go. Um, your book, what is it about? And uh, yeah, tell us more about it.
1: Yeah, my book has been published in the British publisher called Emerald in a series called, a collection called Frontiers in Management History. Uh, the title of the book is The Emergence of Modern Hospital Organization Uh, and management in the world, 1880s, 1930s. Um, The book, uh, as I said, first studies the emergence, the creation of new ideas to manage large hospitals. Um, These ideas emerge in different countries at the same time. Initially, when I started my research, I believed what many handbooks said which is that the US was the pioneer, that the John Hopkins uh, Hospital was the, the first hospital that showed the model of what a modern hospital should be in the world. Because if you ask many doctors today, they even tell you this. I have interviewed many doctors and nurses and they also repeat that, that the US set the model But then when you start studying, for instance, I said to myself, but Russia, what happened with Russia? Russia had a a communist revolution in the a century ago. Did they follow the US model? I don't think so. (laughs) So I just (laughs) and what about China? Or what about Japan? So if if you really have traveled, and I have traveled, I I have been very lucky to live in pre-COVID times, and I could have travel a lot. Uh, Japan, China, Australia, they have different climate conditions, different history, different institutions. So you cannot believe really that the young Hopkins was the model and the rest of the world were uh, with their nails in the (laughs) ground waiting to imitate that. Of course, Western Europe, I thought to myself, Western Europe, possibly imitated the John Hopkins Hospital model set in 1898. Uh, but then I, rea- I met uh, one professor in the Charite Hospital of Berlin in Germany. She's an expert. She has published about the arrival of US ideas in the German hospitals after World War II. And she has demonstrated that Germans didn't like US ideas. <laughs> <laughs> that Germans like their local embeddedness, their traditions of a regional hospital system with regional governments talking to regional scientists and a dense network, right? And this is also the model in the Netherlands uh, in, in many ways. It's very locally embedded. It, it's not the centralized thing in the provincial capitals. So, when I started to question myself that there was one model that troubled, I accepted as a hypothesis for my book that there were a hundred years ago different models that existed at the same time that were functional depending on their local conditions and their local history. So I first started studying Western Europe. There's one chapter, uh, studying how hospitals improved in Germany, especially when in health insurance started to be mandatory for workers paid by employees and workers in 1880s. That was very modern. And that made a whole market for physicians and nurses because if workers were, could afford to pay with their health insurance, it was free market. Uh, So that's one of the reasons why Germany has, even today, a dense network of physicians, small centers, and nurses everywhere in all the regions, because workers could pay their doctors and their medical treatment since the late 1880s. That was something that was not only comparable with what happened in Russia after the communist revolution. Same idea for the Soviets in the 1920s and 1930s. The Soviets also made affordable for workers of factories to have all kinds of medical services. The best uh, centers for treatment of tuberculosis were former palaces of the Russian Tsars. So the nobility, had to, well, they, had, they lost their palaces, especially in the Crimea Peninsula. So workers of factories were laying in the sun, recovering from tuberculosis in former palaces. So <laughs> in the 1920s, there's a lot of photographs. I, I read a book, which is a jewel, which is called Red Medicine. that was a travel made by one British, surgeon and one North American surgeon that made a trip in 1934 in Russia, invited by the Soviet government in order to propaganda, of course, to to show them the very best of the communists in a very poor country at the time, of course. So they only showed them the very best. (laughs) They didn't show them the rural. Uh, problems of the rural population, which was massive population, they only saw cities and in cities, the factories and the workers, which were like the elite of the Soviets. Um, They had a different uh, system of hospital organization, much more hierarchical than in Germany, but in common with Germany, this affordability for workers for prevention of illnesses and treatment of illnesses. It was great. Every factory, every school, even in public gardens, there were health facilities for every urban dweller working in factories. It was according to the British and the North American surgeon who saw all that. It was great. Uh, Also, uh, I realized that in China, for instance, Many North American institutions, especially the Rockefeller Foundation or the Carnegie Foundation, were interested in China a century ago. It was the first movements in order to try to see from the US what was going on in there, in China. There there were many British missionaries, many religious uh, orders of all kinds, Protestants, Catholics, that had been arriving to China since uh, early times. So these missionaries, these Westerners had been trying to introduce Western medicine in a country that had a traditional medicine of thousands of years. Uh, Chinese population didn't like Western medicine. Uh, there was, I studied one hospital in particular, in Hong Kong, uh, which was half for Chinese, we use in Chinese medicine herbs, uh, pointing with the needles, and um, a lot of touching, right? A lot of Chinese traditional medicine. Half of the hospital was was for that, and the other half was for Western medicine, and the hospital was always filled on the Chinese side. Local people didn't like the Western medicine. These taking pills. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't like drugs, so they preferred herbs. They were used to herbs and solving many things with exercise, plants, and, and this breathing, these things that we know today that have been disseminated. So a century ago, Western medicine with the Rockefellers tried to be imposed, and even they created new faculties of medicine but they were not popular at all. Same thing, similar things happening in Latin America. When I started reading secondary sources and I wrote a chapter in my book about Latin America, uh, I also used books of troubles of associations of surgeons that wrote about how hospitals were in every country in Latin America, similar to the Russian thing, but in Latin America. and they observed that Latin America was uh, an exotic combination of many different influences. On the one hand, hospitals had big windows uh, through which lots of air and light could enter, good to reduce infections. Even today, with the COVID uh, or a hundred century ago, with the Spanish flu, scientists discovered that patients recover much better if exposed to uh, the sun. the rays the violet yeah 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 there are many pictures of uh the people sick with the spanish flu in 1918 1919 that with their beds were exposed in a terrace in a balcony in -hmm. the sun taking the sun uh because microbes uh are heavily in the air you know today in covid they tell us to open the windows and so the air is uh, renewed in closed spaces This was discovered many, many centuries ago. Uh, And that happened in the hospitals in Latin America a hundred years ago. They had the influence of colonial times under Spanish rule because the Spaniards, also with the tradition of big windows to let the air go in and the light, uh, had that. But they also had the influence of France and Italy and the UK many Latin American uh, physicians were sons of the elite, sons of millionaires, sons of landowners, sons of cattle uh, owners. And they had the money to make what they call the trip to Europe. Even today, they have this tradition in many families in Latin America with uh, money. Yeah, for them, you must do your travel to Europe. Yeah, it's like, and you have to, to travel to Paris, London, Amsterdam, uh, Moscow, uh, Venice, of course, Venice. And and after two months of traveling to Europe, you can retire to Latin America and start working, marrying, and having children. (laughs) But, well, I'm I'm having fun, of course. If Latin American people hear me, they will kill me. But this is just a a joke that is based on reality and that explains very much Also, the fact that many Latin American physicians used to travel at least once or twice in their life to European hospitals. And they learned innovations in the way some surgical practices took place or what new medicines were discovered. And many Latin Americans used, especially Italian, techniques of doing surgery. And I, I asked myself, why Italy? Italy was not the center of innovation of medicine, but Italy had, of course, Pope, you know, Rome, the Vatican. And Latin Americans who were very Catholic, all wanted to go to see the Pope in Rome. <laughs> so, because they had to go to Italy, they spent also time watching and seeing uh, surgical operations of Italian doctors. So, that explains that in Latin America, more than any other continent in the world, Italian medicine had an influence (laughs) because of the willingness to see the Pope. Uh, They also, of course, went to Germany, but not many Latin Americans spoke German at the time. They spoke French and some English. And of course, they understood more Italian because it's a Roman language. So I discovered that Western Europe had this influence because of the troubles. And third influence in Latin American hospitals and medicine was the organization of hospitals. The need to have trained nurses because it was very common in Italy or Spain to have nuns. Nuns not necessarily trained in medicine. And Latin America in this was not very European. Latin America preferred the US model of having trained nurses with a special schools to train nurses. And even they invited in Argentina, they invited uh, some of the students who have worked with Florence Nightingale. I don't know if you're familiar with Florence Nightingale, but Florence Nightingale lived in the middle of the 19th century in the UK. And she traveled with the British Army to the Crimean Peninsula during the Crimean War, and she realized that one way to reduce mortality of the soldiers was to clean the bones, to clean the clothes, to clean the skin, lots of water, lots of soap. and. Some separation of the beds. That stupid things reduced heavily deaths in the Crimean War. And Florence Nightingale, when she went back, she received lots of honors. She's one of the greatest nurses in the history of nurses in the world. And she indeed set a model for many. Uh, hospitals in the world. Increasing cleanliness, separation, uh, these nurses with the special clothes only to treat the patient, then changing your clothes okay, to avoid infections. She realized before Germans or French Pasteur or Koch discovered that the origin of many illnesses were bacteria, she made an intuition that there was something that was being contagi- uh, transferred through clothes or through the hands. So that was a revolution. Um, Argentinians hired uh, a student of Florence Nightingale, and she opened a school for nurses in Buenos Aires, who was training a century ago, the nurses working in some of the largest hospitals in Argentina, in Buenos Aires. And same thing happened in Brazil or in Mexico, where the training of nurses really was something that with the British influence of La Florence Nightingale, all the schools that were being opened in the US improved a lot the professionalization of nurses beyond the nuns and the prayers that dominated still in Southern Europe, or the prayers in Southeast Asia also, many temples, or in Muslim hospitals where prayers were the best medicine in many cases.
0: Wow!
1: So I I I write about this: the U.S., Russia, China, Hong Kong, a bit of Latin America, and then I focus on two hospitals in Barcelona, uh, because uh, I also want to say in my book that even if you have a national model different from other nation in the way you order your hospitals or train your staff. Even that each center is different depending on the conflict of powers inside every center. That's something doctors and nurses know very well. Uh, Hospitals are like uh, churches. (laughs) Uh, There are a lot of egos. There are some physicians who believe or nurses who believe they know better they know more or they are superior to others or that they are more innovative than the others or what the hell these other beliefs. There's a lot of egos, which is normal in professional, in in liberal professions. Same happens among lawyers, among university professors. There's a lot of ego. And when there are many egos, you know that uh, in this period, uh, a century ago, The creation of departments for each medical specialization started slowly to appear, because uh, before the 19th century it was general medicine. Doctors did everything, but at the end of the 19th century and especially the 20th, there were the big specialists: in cancer, specialist in respiratory diseases, specialist in digestive problems. So, the pathologist, a specialist in laboratories, the specialist in radio diagnosis, which was called drongenology. The thing is that each specialist had not exactly a department, but had a head. And the head created a group of students of medicine that were learning from the head, from the master, like a guild, in many ways, like medieval oh. guilds, right? The, the The superior specialist was the master. The students of medicine, like the apprentices, right? And then the nurses or the nuns were like, poof, the last, uh, you know, they were auxiliary staff, but far from the other middle and top uh, uh, levels. This, if you have a specialist, the specialist, as in the universities, have to fight for Uh, uh, few resources. There's a limited budget that the government or each hospital with donations have. And you have to live with that budget. So the director of the hospital has to distribute the budget for each specialty. So each specialty needs something more training, more equipment, more whatever, more more stuff. And they have to fight they have to struggle to get more resources from that limited budget, right? Uh, This creates uh, conflicts of power and conflicts of interest in the allocation of resources, but also in the strategies that have to be uh, dominating a, a hospital. If this conflict of powers happen during pandemic times, things become a bit worse. So my chapter, Uh, on two hospitals of Barcelona a century ago reveal how important it is to improve the application of strategies to meet a pandemic, not only to understand how a hospital must be managed or organized, but also human people. You must also have psychology, you must be a specialist in behavior and try to prevent these conflicts of power, because it's not only a question of money, it's not only a question of efficiency in use of resources, it's only a question of prevention of conflicts among people between the nuns and their superior nun, the nurses and the superior nurse, between the superior nurse and the head specialist and the director of the hospital, the administrator. So uh, I discovered in the meetings of the boards of these two hospitals that I studied, the largest ones in Barcelona, and still some of the largest today, that uh, you have to be aware and you have to prevent. You have to have a strong leader. It's a, you have to really apply ideas of leadership in management. You cannot have a simple administrator taking care of physicians and nurses. That has been one of the sources of most problems in our pandemic today, and in the running of most hospitals in history. Uh, Especially after the 1980s, many governments started to hire uh, administrators or engineers to be the CEOs of many hospitals. Big mistake, big mistake. Because in the 1980s and 1990s, the priority was to run Uh, efficiently the budget. That's important, the budget. But uh, someone who's not a physician cannot really efficiently understand physicians. So the hierarchy in the hospitals needs always to have a manager scientist and a manager administrator. And if you don't have this, if you just have a top administrator administrator, it will be a mess. And when the pandemic arrives, doctors and nurses will not obey, and will complain, and will make strikes. And the administrator will go to the government and will say, give me more money. It's a question of money. You understand nothing. You understand nothing. <laughs> and well, if you can read that, I have interviewed many doctors because I could not believe that one hospital with clear leader physician, as the manager, the hospital went perfect, perfect, and the the figures of uh, patients per day and the cost per day per patient were declining in times of inflation of World War One. The costs in the hospital, the prices of medicines were up, but the cost for the patient went down, which was what happens in this hospital. Good management, and good management by a leader, scientists well respected in their community and inside the hospital. In another hospital that I analyzed, something completely different uh, I observed in the meetings of the board of the hospital. The leader was a priest, a priest who loved and had a passion for geology, for stones, and this priest was traveling the more he could to North Africa to study stones. He was not constantly in the hospital. He had no idea what happened with the physicians, with the nurses, or the patients. He didn't understand the medical revolution that was taking place at the time, or the meaning of x-rays, or the efficiency of possible vaccines being discovered at the time. He didn't want to be the money spent on that. Uh, On the other hand, most of the money came from private donators who were imposing in what exactly to spend their donations to the manager of the hospital. Oh, no. The donators were rich people, bankers, no. uh, widows from industrialists, who wanted to have a jewel of modernist architecture with their name at the entrance of the hall. And lots of beds for patients inside, you know? But the, the building, it has to be a small building with many, maybe 20 to 40 beds inside. And the name of the the modernist sculptures and architecture. This hospital is full with small buildings, nice. It's a jewel of the modernist art in Europe. And it earns a lot of money with the tickets of the tourists that go and want to see the the building. But it's a disaster for the doctors. (laughs) I have interviewed many doctors which is still they still use the building for medical purposes. And they said that for them is really painful trying to cross each from one building to the other to visit the patients. It's crazy because you get uh, infected. You are transferring things. It's time consuming. It's not efficient. uh, The equipment cannot be moved. If you have x-rays in in the other corner of the campus, how can you move the, the patient to the X-rays? Crossing the gardens? Yes. The patients had to cross the gardens in their beds or in the arms of someone because there were tunnels underground. But the tunnels underground were for the, for the sanitary staff to move, but not the equipment. The equipment or the patients had to go crossing the gardens from building to building crazy crazy and the general manager geologist in north africa making tourism so what was the consequence it was a disaster if you read the meetings there was always struggles bitter struggles between the doctors and the managers and the priest always when the doctors wanted to buy more x-rays more vaccines more med- when they wanted to have courses to train in a professional way nurses who were nuns, the priest said that no way. The nuns do not need to follow courses to learn innovations in medicine, of course not. Their only duty is to take care of the souls of the poor people who are in the bed. So they don't need any course to do that. They do enough. (laughs) The physicians were really traveling to German hospitals, British hospitals, even to the US, young Hopkins. And they saw these professional nurses all in white, all clean, all following uh, routines that help in the surgical room. And they saw their nuns that were dirty because they were working in the kitchen, they were working in the laundry, and then with their hands the, like this, then touching the patients. And they saw, oh my God, That cannot happen. And and if you only study this hospital, you would believe that the city of Barcelona had uh, the worst possible management of hospitals in the world. But then, like 10 minutes walking, you have the other hospital with this leading physician, which worked smooth. And all the students of medicine, learning, nurses trained. So what happens in the same city? And this is human behavior, this is psychology, and this is much more than administration, it is who's leading a hospital. And it must be a scientist. It must be administrator taking care of the budget, but always below the scientist, especially when there's a pandemic. You cannot have an administrator that doesn't want to spend money, saying uh, that you don't have to spend, or that you cannot hire more staff. If you need staff, you hire staff, and that's it. Uh, so that's something that seems so simple, but that usually you do not have enough empirical evidences that demonstrate that it is just not an opinion, that it, this was a fact, that this is a historical fact, that this still is happening today and affects the healthcare system very intensely.
0: Wow. Wow. Paloma, I could listen to you for hours,
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I
0: think that that it's time to let you go. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for making the time and um, for all your knowledge and for sharing it with us.
1: Thank you for inviting me to this blog. I think that you're doing a great job because often when you produce ideas, if they are not disseminated, they're worthless. So thank you very much for for helping uh, share these ideas with other people